Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to the Long Farm Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, my co-hosts. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, guys. God damn it. It's great to see you guys. Aaron, who is on the show this week? Nary 45 seconds ago, I said goodbye to this person. Now I'm introducing their episode. They are Jesse David Fox. Uh, he has a new book out, Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Work. If you've read Vulture, over the years, you have encountered Jesse's coverage of comedy, comedy in a broad sense, like everything from like stand up to SNL to um, these kind of Netflix one person show amorphous forms. And that's kind of what the book is about. Honestly, it's about how comedy exploded out from its 1980s comedy club boom roots into all the places in it is now what that says about us. Uh, really great conversation. Is the book funny, Aaron? The book is funny. Uh, it's a fine line, I would say, to do a book that is about jokes and has jokes, but this book and his writing walks that line effectively. Were you funny, Aaron? I was not funny. I didn't. I, I specifically kept that part of myself inside uh, during this conversation. Aaron played it totally straight. Uh, the show is uh, brought to you in partnership with Fox Media, who also are involved in New York Magazine, where our guest works. I, don't know, I feel like we should periodically disclose these kind of things. So go buy the book, support us, support everything. They help us make the show. And now here's Aaron with Jesse David Fox. Welcome, Jesse David Fox. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm not going to bore the people. We were just discussing how you have the same name, apparently, uh, Jesse Fox, as uh, a, a professor. Yes. And you, you went with the David uh, to cut that out of the loop. It was either that or vow to vanquish them and ascend as the number one Jesse Fox, not unlike Kang in the current MCU. This sort of segues into, um, I get a lot of um, books in the mail when I'm booking this show. And on the back of your book, I'm looking at your book right now, it says, from a beloved comedy critic. And uh, 
when I read that, I didn't realize that Jesse David Fox was a beloved comedy critic, <laughs> but I also didn't realize that I don't know how much competition mm. there even is to be like you. You could tell me that you're the number one comedy critic in America. And my follow-up question would be, is there a number two? Are you the only comedy critic in America? So at what point in your life did you become a beloved comedy critic? It's a great question. So uh, it it should be noted, Jason Zinneman, I I think, is probably America's most beloved comedy critic. Maybe not. I don't know. We have... He is uh, at the New York Times. I have no sense of who's more prominent or who is more beloved. But I honestly rejected the term critic up until the writing of that sentence was written by my editor, Jackson Howard at FSG, and then showed to me. And I realized that I wrote a book of comedy criticism Mm -hmm. and that I has been working as a comedy critic for 11 years. Um, Was the part you objected to the comedy part or the critic Cri- part? Critic the part. critic part. Yes. I've been covering comedy for 11, 12 years, but I had an idea of what a critic was and did not think of myself as that. And and that is partly because I did not like the review as a form for me personally. And I didn't like it as sort of a way of approaching comedy in so much as like, is this good or is this bad? Now, that is not all what reviews are, but it did feel like there's certain expectations from reviews that at some point you tell the reader, is it good or good? Is it bad? There's a service to it that I think is admirable. It just sort of was uncomfortable in a sort of like detached galaxy brain way of like, who am I to say what good is and what bad is? The reader's context is maybe they watch two specials a year. I watch 200. We're not even speaking the same language of like, and our value systems are sort of all over the place. And if anything, I sort of focused on <laughs> writing about value systems. And, you know, I did a long piece about Adam Sandler, which was really just about what would it mean to remove Adam Sandler from any idea of what goodness means. And, and instead, I focused largely on, you know, I, uh, hosting a podcast where I interviewed comedians about their process and then sort of like bigger idea pieces that were more abstract and less about reviewing what things are good and bad. And then I write this book, which is not really about what is good and bad, but is undeniably some sort of writing about comedy. And it's not a history and it's not reporting necessarily, though that's all interwoven. And it was told to me that this was a book of criticism. And then there'd be blurbs written about the book and people would call me Vulture's Comedy Critic, which is not my job title. And I talked to Catherine Van Arendonk, who's a critic at Vulture, who, who does review specials. And she's like, it is interesting for someone to learn what their job is from other people writing about them. So once I saw that that was what I was doing and people saw me as that, I then in my heart embraced that is who I am and that is what I do. The beloved part I will see in uh, when the book is out, I'll let you know. I have not accepted that I'm beloved, but I appreciated that that is how my editor sees me. Well, okay. I mean, beloved is in the uh, the eye of the beholder, but I would say that the book and your larger project of covering comedy is you're a booster of comedy. It is an argument that is about good and bad, but it's not about like an individual special being good and bad. It's an argument for the importance of comedy and the heft of comedy in the cultural 
universe at large, which I'm not sure that anyone like is specifically like taking the other side of that argument, but in many ways, like, I mean, this is just something that comes up on the show a lot. You know, someone will say, Oh, you know, uh, video games is bigger than the movie music TV. Why don't more people write about video games? And my response is, Writing about everything is not the same. Yeah, yeah. Just because people buy more video games doesn't mean there's like a exponentially larger audience for reading about video games. In fact, we we might be able to conclude that the high sales and low criticism of video games is a an argument that it's difficult to write something wants someone wants to read about video games. And I think I could apply the same standard perhaps to comedy, which is you could tell me the average comedy super fan reads like one article a year about comedy. And I would believe you if you're actively engaged in watching it. I don't think your first natural thing is like, oh, I got to like find out who the most beloved critic of this is. So kind of going back to like when you first started writing about comedy, like what do you feel like that fundamental difficulty is and how did you initially push up against that challenge? Yeah, it's interesting because when I first, first started writing about it, it was not my profession to be a journalist. I wrote for Splitsider for free for fun because like that's where I was approaching writing at the time. Oh man, Splitsider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just so like that's... you just reawoken a part of my brain that turned off like ten years ago. Well, well who, that... what, what was Splitsider? What was that? An onion was, property? No, it was the all right. So it was the, the alls, right? So the yes. all hairpin and then Splitsider, which was yes. sort of like a comedy blog in the style of the all, and I was I loved it, and I I tried to contribute to it. So I just did. It was this time in media where non-professional journalists can get a decent amount of eyeballs on their stuff if they just don't expect to be paid for it. Right. And it allowed me to go from a career nowhere near being a journalist to kind of where I am today. So at first I was just sort of like doing it. I read Splitsider. I did not know enough about the history of journalism to know that Splitsider is this new rare thing that's happened where people would take comedy seriously. And then as I sort of kept on doing it, from Suicide Vulture, I started to look into it and realize the biggest difficulty is that there's a complete lack of anyone who's ever written about comedy seriously. Compared to any other art form, it, it, it's, there's just nothing. And, and as a result, there is something of like, when you're writing about something, you're somewhat joining into a conversation that has happened, right? When if you write about film now, all pieces are somewhat in conversation to the history of film discourse. So then when you're writing about comedy, you realize there is no history of comedy discourse that comes from the perspective of writers. It just doesn't exist. Periodically in in L.A. in the late 1970s, there was a person who was covering the comedy beat, but he wasn't really reviewing it. He was just sort of like doing scene reports. And then the closest analog to what I and Jason Zinneman, our country's beloved comedy critics, do today is a person named Laurie Stone, who works at The Village Voice in the late 80s and 90s, who was a downtown theater critic who realized, oh, comedy might be a thing worth writing about. And kind of that is mostly it in terms of like major publications. So the challenge was, how do you start a conversation that no one has been participating in whatsoever? And as a result of no one participating in it, it is mired in all of these rules that have been created by comedians about what is or is not comedy, what comedy can or cannot do, what makes a real comedian, 
the idea that you can't analyze comedy at all. Periodically, I would talk to comedians who would be like, you can't analyze a joke, it'll ruin it. I was like, still we're talking about this? Okay. And then I would go on chugging along for another two years, building a career where I would be doing that. You know, the example I write about in the book is I interviewed Jerry Seinfeld at Vulture Festival, I think 2015. And I wanted to ask him about his joke writing process. And he says, this is my favorite thing to talk about in the world, but I'll bore the people here. And I'm like, how can that be? These people bought the tickets to this. They spent $50 within two minutes. They care about anything you would talk about. I have to imagine they care about the thing they like about you most. That was the moment where I was like, this can't continue. Like, we have to figure out a way to take it seriously. And then it became really exciting because it's open terrain, right? There's, there is so much to talk about. And then fortunately, you know, as I've done it more, more comedians have grown comfortable with it. You know, like the difference between how comedians talk to me seven years ago, six years ago when I started the podcast and how they talk to me now is, is radically different where they're just like so honored that they get to do this. And comparing that to where it was 10 years ago, it's night and day. I, um, just to insert myself into every possible conversation, I think there is some similarity between what you're doing on your podcast, good one, um, and this podcast oh, here, thousand, the long a million percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I want to sort of go back to, uh, the ur source of both of these, I think I would probably go back to Mark Marin's show, which was for me. It's the first interview show I remember listening to more than once. And my big revelations, which are extremely like non-revelations from listening to it, were, wow, comedians are pretty good at like chatting casually, just like telling jokes. Huge shocker. Yeah. And when I started doing this show, I was like, oh, these people who tell stories for a living are pretty good at telling the story of their own life. Mm-hmm. Huge uh, <laughs> non shocker revelation there. But in the case of the people who, who come on the show, I did find a similar reaction at times to the reaction you got from Jerry Seinfeld, which is, Oh, no one wants to hear about how I do this or how these stories were constructed. Everything's in the material. And I think that the era of podcasting is sort of a deconstruction, a deconstructive era where people are starting to sort of pick apart how people do this thing that they've been doing for a long time without explaining it. Um, For me, those were questions like, I always want to talk to people about like on and off the record and on background. And I'm always like, I understand that these are rules within your industry, but can you explain to me where they came from, how they were communicated to you, this sort of secret language? And I think that there's a lot of parallels in comedy about the rules, about sort of not explaining a joke. So for you, as you started sort of grounding yourself in the world, like what were the topics that you wanted to kind of unpack within comedy? Yeah, there's a number one, which will be, it's quite in the zeitgeist right now, which is what is of this joke is true or not. And I remember the first time I ever asked a comedian that, and they told me fairly casually, I asked Jen Kirkman on maybe the fourth or fifth episode of my podcast, where did that happen? Or how did that happen? And she goes like, well, that was actually a comedian that was backstage. And this story, which happened, I think maybe on the side of the road actually happened in a parking lot. And this person's that. And then I imagined this person's life. It was, I don't, it's like a door opened 
And I was like, this is amazing. There's so much world here that's so unexplored. And that, so then there was sort of, that was sort of the specific thing. And then the broad thing was like, can be every comedian, and they'll say this to Mark. This is something I noticed from WTF. They would talk about process on that show, especially at the beginning, a little bit, but it was kind of in a vague term. And what they would say is like, you write on stage, right? And they'll be like, yeah, 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 definitely. And then that would be the end of it, right? And I was like, what does that mean? I knew vaguely what it meant, but I was like, what did it mean to that person? And then my podcast is essentially like, me 200 times in a row asking people what writing on stage means. And every time it's completely different. What they go up with, how much in their head they've actually written. Because really, they wrote the joke while doing the dishes like Pat Oswalt did. But he didn't say any of it out loud until he went on stage and just had a bullet point and started talking it out again. Or they don't know any of it. They haven't thought any of it, but they need the threat of bombing to make them write or whatever. Or they tape record themselves and then they go back and they they write it out. There, this is a different thing. So it was really like showing people that there was even a process to an art form that seemed like there was nothing happening at all. And for me, the sort of like Genesis, I often say is the magician revealing secret specials that were on Fox in the nineties. I was like, that is more interesting to me than magic. I watch still magic breaking down explainers and I don't really care to watch magic. Like, what I've learned, and this is what I hoped, is that like I think creating is a really human, vulnerable space. And when we're doing it, we're often alone and it could be scary or you're putting yourself out there. And it by accessing their process, we're actually getting a deeper understanding of this person than if we're just like, tell me about the most traumatic thing that ever happened to you. Which maybe, but like really, like you're getting inside their private life. And I found that exhilarating. I still do. I've been doing it forever. I mean, I imagine as y'all did, it's like oh, there's so many different ways in which people do this. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. 
It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong, and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. So you've been doing this for 10 years. Like people can't have been doing this exactly the same way forever. Right. You'll hear these sort of um, cliches about comedy. When you're starting off, you got to do five sets a night <laughs> yeah, yeah. at uh, every comedy club in the city. You need to do that for a decade before you can even start in comedy. And my response always to that is, did anyone not do that? Like, is there an example of someone who, never performed live at all and is like, you know, massively successful. I always come back to like that um, in poker, the top poker players were generally people in their sixties mm. because it took that long to have played enough hands to be great. So some sort of overlap here with the, like being on stage. And since there's been poker on the internet, the best players in the world have all been in their early twenties or late teens change one yeah. ingredient and all of the sort of, uh, lore gets rearranged. And I think that your book actually is about the rearrangement of the comedy lore. It's probably always rearranging, but it's about the most recent rearrangement of the comedy lore and sort of the deconstruction of the, hey, I'm just a guy on stage speaking my mind yeah, yeah. kind of archetype. So how did you sort of coalesce around that as the central theme to the book and how did you get a whole book out of that idea yeah so as a side note bob newhart never performed stand-up the first time he performed stand-up was for his first album which was called the button down mind of bob newhart it was maybe one of the most popular albums in the history of albums not just comedy albums albums is and it gets ignored because he did other things but it was so popular. It was an, it won album of the year, the Grammys, not comedy album. It won album of the year. Anyway, so it happens. So that idea of I'm just a guy and guy is part of it, right? Yes. There's sort of, there's a lot of rules that were codified in the eighties of like what comedy was. I think of it like the narrative I play in my mind is there was like a type of guy who never left Boston or any sort of non New York LA city. And resented anyone who became more successful than him. And they're like, they're just celebrities. Real comics are guys like us. And they talk like this. And they created a series of rules of like, we're not artists up there. We're just doing it. And like, don't take it seriously. And it's cool to make fun of these people or those people because it's all jokes. Who cares? And from that, you have a sort of approach that is completely cynical towards the audience. We're going to kill them. We're going to destroy them. They're, it's us against them. And that approach is, is essentially a defensive stand. You're going on stage defensively or offensively, but the goal is to create a boundary. And I think often all things that are bad about stand-up is rooted in this sort of monolithic idea of what real comedy is. And that's rooted in so many of the many things that like are cancer to our society, right? 
you know, misogyny and racism and such like that, toxic masculinity. So when I decided to write the book or what I wanted from the book is to be like, we have to break down this fundamental thing that hinders not just comedy fans from understanding it, but hinders comedians own ability to do the type of art they want to make because they're nervous. Someone's going to make fun of them for trying. A lot of comedians, they're allergic to something I call red hot sincerity. That feeling of like you're actually getting to the core of like just being earnest and comedians are repelled by it. And I am trying to let them accept that they're artists making art that connects to people that has tremendous cultural and societal value and is valued so tremendous. Like you can't pretend you're still Rodney Dangerfield. You just can't do it. You are getting so much respect. And that's beautiful. Like it is, you want the audience to have high expectations for you and you want to be excited to meet them. So that's how I realized I could spin it out because it's like, it just became like every chapter was oriented on completely rearranging how we even approach talking about this thing. And because it's been essentially like 200 years of calcified, my opinion, wrong opinions, then there's so much to break down. I mean, I could have written the book forever. I could have thought of all these different things. At some point I had to be like, this captures it, but like it never ends. (laughs) Can I push back against your idea there? So that idea of this eh, fuck you kind of like a nineties comedian, that being one model and this model that you're pushing of sort of sincerity, heart on your sleeve, being vulnerable, I don't think that there's been a hit comedy special of the latter, the older style for quite a while. And to me, comedy specials that are, I feel like, aimed at what you're describing, be it the uh, Bo Burnham special, it seems to me that there's a lot of comedy that is sort of aimed at a critic who is interested in deconstructive comedy, whereas that other style sort of also naturally fell by the wayside in the market. Am I right about that? Or am I just overly a vulture reader? You're overly a vulture reader. Um, you, It's useful because I do think, when I think I talk about a lot of these things in circles of people who I would surround myself in, it's like, yeah, we all do that. We all take comedy so seriously. We all think Maria Bamford is the greatest comedian alive. Everyone does or whatever. Right. No one's pushing back. And I was like, watch the Netflix specials that your algorithm didn't even tell you. Well, so I, I don't know about them because I read Vulture and go on Netflix. So to me, the uh, Hannah Gads, uh, what's the special? Uh, Nanette. Nanette. To me, Nanette was the most covered yeah. comedy special of the last several years. So to me, what you're describing as sort of alternative culture is the monoculture. I was so sure that this thing still existed that when you started the question i thought you were going to make the exact opposite argument okay (laughs) (laughs) that i thought you were going to say you talk about comedy this way but clearly what people prefer is and then i was like so if i just looking at netflix this year broadly i've put under these terms of more brash comedians or comedians trying to adhere to sort of older rules shane gillis michelle wolf heather mcmahon Tom Segura, Mark Normand, Leanne Morgan, Andrew Santino, Jim Jeffries, Burt Kreischer, Jared Freed, Lou Nell, Courtney Wayne. That's all specials that maybe came out in the last seven months. I only knew two, like two of those people. Yeah, huge. Burt Kreischer is, I like Burt Kreischer, but Burt Kreischer is like 
in many ways, Bart Kreischer isn't as tough as I make him, but he is a sort of a metal point between comedians that are like that and whatever. And he's huge. He plays giant concert arenas where most of the people that you think of are like under maybe Hannah Gatsby and Bo Burnham, who are maybe the biggest examples of completely deconstructive. They might be playing like kind of small, medium-sized theaters. You know, like for the most part, the sort of orthodoxy idea of comedy is bigger than it's ever has been. You look at lists of movie critics and they'll be like these small little things and people will be like, why isn't the new Spider-Man on this, right? It's that level of a divide. Like for the most part, if you look at like the people that played Madison Square Garden, it's like no deconstructive comedian. It is all these people, most of them men, and some of them are, are, I wouldn't say they're all bad at comedy, but they all represent a certain part of the ideal of adhering to the traditional understanding of what comedy is and why I'm able to justify writing about it as I have is clearly there are some comedians who are moving in this direction. It's not like a fantasy where I'm like completely trying to recreate comedy, but it still is not the mainstream dominant perspective outside of what people write about, especially people who write about outside of comedy things. I think where I was actually going with yeah, that. Sorry, yeah, sorry. No, no, I'm, it's, it's interesting because you know, a lot of these issues are kind of just about like, what's your media diet? Where do you stand? What do you consider normal dominant culture versus alternative culture? But it strikes me that something like Nanette, which is written about extensively in your book, is a great thing to write about. Whereas even a killer traditional 80s comedy store set yeah. is actually not that interesting to write about. Like you use, ah, it was hilarious. Here are some of the jokes for it. In some ways, some of these newer forms are also like more literary or have ingredients, which are new in them that makes them interesting to a critic. Whereas some of the older forms are more critically resistant in ways we discussed earlier. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely fair. I also think there's two things. One, if someone's doing something different or new, it's easy to, to see, right? If it's radically different and if it's popular, right? The, the thing about Nanette was that it was different, new, and radically popular. Right. It might have maybe done certain parts of that, but how popular it was then makes it a bigger deal worth writing about. There's certain things in this book that I write about that I don't think are on baseline different or new, but I, I try to put them in a context of sort of what makes them special or sort of what you can take away from them. I think of like, I write about, I think I have a little bit where I write about Cat Williams special where he opens and he talks about Jacksonville for 10 minutes. And he's just doing a thing that a lot of stand-ups do, which is talk about the town you're in at the beginning of your set. But he does it for 10 minutes, a town he's never been in for. He does 10 perfectly observed minutes about Jacksonville. And it's remarkable. Now, he's doing pretty close to traditional stand-up, but it, it demands watching a lot of stand-up and understanding it to see what is special about him beyond if you just find him personally funny. It is harder. It is a challenge I think all critics face, which is it's hard to write about things that are on a craft level, really technically proficient, and capture what they are without just sort of like breaking things down into nuts and bolts. You know, I do it a little bit at the beginning of the book with Jerry Seinfeld. I do like basic sort of like line by line analysis just to show that it does it. But it is you can't do that over and over again. You just sort of be like, oh, this is a callback to that. And this is a nested punchline, something like that. Like you can do it. It's fun. But it's the hope is the expansion of your appreciation of comedy will then be applied to people who are also doing it simply. I mean, I, I the hope of the book is not to be like, 
Nanette is better than Tom Segura's new special. It's not changing what people think. It's changing how people think, hopefully, where it's like, oh, I like Tom Segura. Let me think more deeply. It's the same thing like studying music theory, right? Music theory is not going to tell you why something is good or bad. It just maybe might help you understand the thing that you already like. Well, I think that's a good sort of jumping off point for a larger question I have about how you write something like this, which is like, you need a vocabulary before you can get to your own ideas. It's almost like you're like writing a book of like music criticism. You have to be like, here's what reggae is. Uh, <laughs> it's on the offbeat. It's like, you know, you're, you're having to basically sort of like situate someone in a thing that they could actually go and watch on the internet, probably if they wanted to. And then you have to say, here's what I think about it. And, and a lot of other forms you don't have to go through all the hoops before you get to the what I thought about it. So in developing this book and, you know, doing this over and over again in columns, like what have you learned about the balance between all of those things? Did you miss at times and like too much of one and not enough of the other? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm an internet writer that I'm, I wrote this book. Like I, when I when I got hired by Vulture, that was my dream. I only just wanted to be a blogger for Vulture. And I wasn't like, oh, if I write for Vulture, I can write for New York Magazine. I was just like, I want to write for Vulture. I want to write blog posts. Maybe I can write essays one day for Vulture. And what I liked about Vulture, even when I was reading it, when I was obsessed with it as a reader, was like it's conversational. And it's, it's a conversation where everyone has the same references. They all know what everyone's talking about. So we can skip the two paragraphs where you explain what stand-up comedy is. And... You don't. You can use shorthand with actors who you might have to be like, oh, you actually might know them from blah blah blah. It's like, oh, we all know who Laura Linney is. I don't know why that's the first brain that came to mind, but <laughs> and that sort of fluency is something I was really attracted to. And and then being able to hyperlink to embed a video instead of having to say a thing that happened is so freeing. Like the idea that you have to summarize comedy when you can just embed it. I thought saved me a lot of where people get tripped up where they have to like write out jokes and then you're like well that doesn't seem funny it's just sort of words written on a page it's like oh you have to sort of watch it well i write on the internet you can watch it the issue was a few things happened one you know as vulture kept getting bigger there wasn't just a small group of readers who all had the same sort of expectations of things and had same knowledge base and i realized then it became this sort of a middle ground where it's like they needed a little bit more context, but actually if you give them a little bit more context, you actually need to give them so much more context. Right. And then, you know, I would see sort of arguments about comedy would happen on the internet. And I'm like, I can't just do like a hot take on this partly because I feel like you need to know like these 40 things for me to even get to my point about how comedy works on the internet. Like you have to know all these different histories. So there was something about this book that was really freeing, which is like, you will get to the point in the book where I'm making some argument that I've been thinking about for the last 10 years by the point where you will have the best perspective to understand it. Because there's a lot of ideas in this book that I would say like are fairly provocative for if you think about comedy theory, they're not provocative to like a layman, <laughs> but I hope that they don't even seem that much so because they're all built in sort of a, a way of seeing all of it. And yeah, I have no idea if it worked. I hope so. But like that, that was, it was an interesting approach because it was a matter of like, if you went into my brain, <laughs> let's say you didn't read this book. You just yeah. went into my brain. You went to a comedy show and knew it was like my brain with no exposure to it. Right. It would be like, ah, you'd be, you'd freak out. I think. Cause it's like so much as I'm looking at so many different things. 
And I do think it's a very exciting way of watching comedy, but I don't think you can just throw someone into the deep end. You have to sort of really build to it. So that, like the more complicated ideas of comedy definitely come later in the book, right? The first few chapters are really just explaining like the foundational ways of understanding how comedy works. There's sort of like what we mean by jokes and, and what we mean by and how the audience is interacted with. And when I say funny, what does it mean? And what does it mean to you? And how's it different? And how can we look at art form of like comedy if we change the way we think of the word as funny? And now we have that baseline, we can kind of really talk about how it operates. Let's go back inside your brain for a moment. Yeah. So, you know, the longer you do this, the more you're sort of building up experiences that relate to other experiences that go backwards in time. And when you look at like, I feel like everyone, like there's a, a huge emphasis in talking about comedy, about talking this like 1980, like the comedy boom and bust, right? Which it's about a decade, which is about how long you've been covering comedy now. Like if you had started in 1982, you would have now just covered the entire boom yeah. and bust cycle. Does having the weight of this history... And the sort of knowledge about momentum and larger narratives, how does it affect how you see one special or one set? Uh, like, are you able to go into a naive brain or has that kind of riding the larger wave made each little bucket of salt water like smaller and less meaningful to you? Um, it's I love how you asked that question. As a person who asks questions for a living, it is fun <laughs> the way you got at that question, with, which is like imagining like, have you ever seen the movie Lucy or Limitless? It's the yes. same basic idea where it's like, I now use 100% of my comedy watching brain. Right. <laughs> or like, I can't even communicate with people anymore. Um, I'll say two things. One, it's like, if I go to a comedy show and people are doing a genuine job of trying to communicate how, what they think is funny, I laugh like a regular person laughs. I'm not like, uh, yeah, 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 I'm like, yeah. I'm convulsively laughing. I laugh quite hard. And then if someone is doing something that I think has not been done before and not in some sort of like esoteric formal way, but just something like there is an essence in this person that has never been put into the stream of comedy before. Like all 100% of my comedy brain is lighting up. That said, when people are not doing good comedy, whatever that means, if I, I think either they're approaching the audience cynically or they're doing something that I think is cheap. I know how cheap it is. Like my barometer for hack is higher or lower. I just sort of know if someone's doing a thing that was kind of cheesy in 1980 and they're still doing it now. So when I watch a special, you know, part of me is trying to watch it as it is. And I think while I'm watching it, I'm somewhat in it for the most part. And then after it's over, I can kind of spin my wheels and be like, oh, this is that. Or if I re especially if I like focus on one joke, just because the nature of my intention spans, like if I focus on one joke, I really can be like, well, this is kind of like this. This is like that. Like, that is why I like doing my podcast, which starts with one joke specifically, because it's like, oh, how big can we zoom out from this thing? But when you bring up the idea of the comedy boom and bust, which was like, it's hard to define, but essentially, let's say it's 1980 to 1992, something like that. I used to be afraid. I mean, I was the first person to call this a second comedy boom. Everyone, everyone noticed it, but like I wrote about it online and then that becomes a term. 
And when I was writing that piece, which I think was like 2015, saying that it started in like 2009, already people were like, it's over. People that were in comedy and not just comedians who are always cynical and always think that any day now, everyone's going to hate comedy again because they were scarred by the 1980s. But like people who are sort of observing comedy in professional capacities, they're like, it's over. The winners have already won. Whoever was going to be the Jerry Seinfeld and Ellen and Roseanne and Gary Shandling of this generation have been decided it's Aziz and Chelsea Peretti or whatever. And I kind of believed it while at the same time writing about how there's a boom happening. Right. And then a few months pass and I see a comedian I've never seen before. And I go, well, that's, this is not going to end. There's this person. And then a year passes and then I don't see a new comedian. That's not exciting. And I'm like, you know what? I think actually right now it's over. And then I, I write about one version of that in the book, which is like, I think it's now it's over. And then I go see a live podcast at this venue called Little Fields, which is in Gowanus. It's a live podcast for a podcast called Las Culturistas and has 50 comedians on the lineup. And I go, I don't know any of these comedians. What is this show? And in the year since, the people who are Las Culturistas are quite famous now. Bowen Yang is on SNL. Matt Rogers is doing quite a lot. And the podcast is much bigger now. But in that moment, it was who knows how many listeners they had and who these comedians were and who the audience was, you know, it's like, this is essentially a majority queer audience in comedy venues that a lot of often gay people avoided because of homophobic comedians. And then the experience of both seeing how good that show was knowing how special those two guys were and knowing how big they will be eventually. And then seeing how big they've become. I go, it, it always resets. There's always something new happening. I have to find it when it does happen, but I, it, even when comedy ended, the boom busted in 1992, the two most exciting comedy movements of maybe the last 40 years were happening in L.A. at the same exact time where this industry was saying the boom was busted, which was the alternative comedy move- movement of the 1990s and the black comedy club movement of the 1990s, which became Def Jam. So it's really about being open to like finding where the spirit is and like and knowing that each generation finds sort of the people that really can reflect their voice and knowing that it is so exciting because it means any comedy show I go to, I will see what's next. Yeah, that very much echoes my own experience with comedy, which is, I mean, I think there's always a a danger and but also a seductiveness to thinking that, you know, music was really the best when I was about 17 to 21. It just doesn't compare to that. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. you know, when I... When I first moved uh, to New York City, I didn't have a lot of money and I knew that there was this show, Invite Them Up, that had like a a happy hour before it. And I'd go almost every week. And to me, that was just something that was happening in New York. With a little bit of like hindsight, this was like a very legendary comedy show where I would say of the 15 regulars, probably 10 of them became famous subsequently to the show. And it was really like, it was an incredible experience. And sometimes when I will go watch one of these Netflix specials that you've written about in this book, particularly one of the more sort of like, I really wanted to kind of subvert the expectation. I'm kind of like, it feels kind of weak to that experience that I had in person when I was 24 years old. And probably a little bit drunk in the back of this place, right? It doesn't have the same power, but in what you were just saying, I'm like, well, the reason that I'm not as engaged with comedy is I'm 
I'm not going to a live podcast tasting in Gowanus. I'm I'm no longer a pursuer of this. And I think comedy does have some of that quality, which is like, yeah, you can like tap into it like in YouTube whenever you want, but there is some sort of like a deeper engagement possible. And to me, your work is kind of like a way that I can like engage with some of that passion without like leaving my house. Now that you've done it, like, is this something that you want to just like keep following forever? Mm. Do you have other stuff you want to write about? Yeah. Um, if people like it, I'll do it. You know, mm. Not, not, not so much as that I'm writing for people, but it's like, well, here's how I view everything. Yeah. If people go, we want you to keep on doing that. This is interesting to us. Be both professionally and the public. Then I'm like, great. We will continue this conversation. Like I, I, I've started thinking about this book as not trying to end a lot of the debates around comedy, but as a starting point for actual conversations about it. And that is exciting to me. And if people read the book and engage that way, and a lot of comedians who I've sent the book to have done that. And that is exciting to me that like, oh, like, Going forward, I'm going to be able to host my podcast with comedians who have read the book. And now we're going to be able to have a different conversation than we were able to have before. That said, if people are like, nah, we actually don't want comedy to be talked like that way, then I'll guess I'll write about watches. <laughs> I'm really interested in the world of watches. I think it's an unexplored topic that people are spending a lot of money on. But because most watch journalists work for places selling watches, it is a completely underexplored, like underworld. But to me, comedy is my muse, and I, I I am always looking for different ways to like just learn about it. It's, you know, we shot a pilot for a documentary version of my podcast that sort of is just really continuing the project of can we get people to think more deeply about comedy? And then if we do, what does comedy look like on the other side of it? That is exciting to me. Like if we get to that world. You know, that's a, I just can't imagine the conversations we'll have. Well, it seems like there's almost been a, a sea change in the relationship of the comedian world to what you're doing. Because you sort of described at the start of this interview, like this sort of historic idea that like, hey, don't try and pick apart the joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't show the magic trick. And when I look at people's reaction to the book, it seems like there's a huge like feeling of like, thank God, like someone cares, like for all the, the work we put into this, thank God there are two people in America <laughs> who are writing about this, but I'm interested for you. Like, like how has your relationship with comedians changed over time? Like yeah. there's always sort of like a weird, like standoffishness also that's implied in it where it's like, Oh, you're like talking about like what stuff is funny. Why don't you get on stage? You know, yeah, yeah. Um, how has that evolved over time and, and where is it now? Yeah. So, you know, I write about it in the book about how I did stand up once and it wasn't to prove that I can. It's just sort of I had a friend who was like, you stop sending me jokes to do. You just got to go on stage and do it. And, you know, that's part of why I think I tried to have the book. Be, two reasons I try to have the book be funny. One, it's like you're buying a book about comedy. You kind of expect you're going to get a book that's funny. And it, I was like, well, I have experience writing funny, funnily, funny, funny. <laughs> I can have some what I consider pretty good jokes in there. But um, I also to show comedians that I'm not like completely some like tweed wearing sophisticated, like up in ivory tower, like completely detached. Like I also have the brain that like has to write a joke. So partly I was younger than all the comedians I was talking to at the beginning. 
and I was doing a new thing and comedians were pushing back on it. It's like, who are you to do this? You're a little kid. What do you know? Then I get older. I've been doing it more. I'm kind of the same age as a lot of prominent comedians. Our ascensions are kind of the same time. So like you're like a peer or something like that. And they were people who it's so interesting. It's sort of like young Gen X, older millennial are still of a generation who like they told their parents are going to be a comedian and their parents were pissed off at them. So like in some ways, I think I give them the validation that they've always been hoping for. They come on my podcast and they feel seen for the first time. Truly, they'll be like, it's a gift you give comedians. Sometimes people say to me just to be to see what they're doing and understand how much work is being put into it and how much of themselves is being put into it. And that I think is reflected in like the blurbs of the book or, or the conversations I had. But now I am, as I get near 40, I'm older than a lot of comedians. I meet tons of comedians who started comedy after I've been writing about it. And that is a completely different relationship that I did not expect, which is one, they've never done comedy without the expectation that someone would take it seriously, without the dream that someone would take them seriously, be it broadly or literally like, I write this joke and hope one day I can be on Jesse's podcast. No one said anything like that in my first five years of being a comedy journalist. It happens a lot. I'll meet people who are now successful young comedians and they're like, oh my God, I'm such a big fan of what you do. And so it's so exciting to realize, oh, there's a new generation of comedian who is not at all bogged down by the thing that I push back against, as you say in the book. They're like, comedy is an art form. I got into it because it's an art form. My aspiration is to be talked about the way Jesse talks about this other stuff. So that has changed where I have been enmeshed I wouldn't say like I go to comedy shows and I'm like welcomed like a king. It's not like I'm famous or friends with really comedians. It is just sort of I am now feeling meshed in sort of the world of comedy. I'm part of it. So to be like to try and, and but interesting to also try to like maintain some sort of distance to do what I need to do. All right. I have one more question. This one's kind of a, a side question, but you brought up this idea of writing about watches. Oh, sure. Which is a topic I know almost nothing about. And you cited that like m- most watch writing is sort of a sidecar to selling someone a watch. I'm curious how you go into something like that, that sort of has no established journalistic basis at all. Like what's the story in watches? Is it who makes them? Is it what are the parts in them? Is it the business of selling watches when you're going into sort of uncharted terrain which I, I think that like some of the comedy stuff has also been uncharted terrain what are you looking for and, and what are your sort of orientation points that is a good point that i only can imagine doing journalism about things that there hasn't really been established journalism about. if there, if there's more than three people doing this professionally it's not a topic you want to write about. and in many ways it started the same way which is like i did not set out to do it i didn't even like when i started getting back into comedy it wasn't my plan my friend brought me to a show the show comedy death ray which now is comedy bang bang which is a podcast but i was just like I saw Hannibal Burris. I'd never seen a comedian I thought was so funny. And then I just became so excited and obsessed. And I would go to shows every week, not unlike as you were describing. And I would listen to all the podcasts. I want to know how everyone related to each other. And I read all I could. I just became enmeshed into this world. And then so a similar thing happened with watches, which is during the pandemic, I uh, downloaded TikTok. And I realized the only TikToks I actually wanted to watch were clips from Pawn Stars. Right. So then I realized I can just go on YouTube. This is going to get to watches, I promise. So I I can just go on YouTube, watch Pawn Stars. I don't need to have TikTok, which is a toxic app. So then I'm watching all these Pawn Stars clips. So then they start recommending antique roadshow clips. So one of the most popular antique roadshow clips is this um, 
former Vietnam War veteran, he brings out this watch that he's never worn once, that he essentially has kept in a vault with all the papers and receipts since the war. And it gets valued at like a million dollars and he falls on the floor. It's a very famous antique roadshow clip. And I'd watch it over and over again. And then watch other watch related antique roadshow clips. So as YouTube does, where it can radicalize people who had no intention of being radicalized, it then started showing me YouTube videos, watched YouTube videos, which there's a whole world of. The most famous examples are Hodinkee, which is like what we think of as when we think of watch journalism, which is essentially really a watch store that also does certain content. They have this series called Talking Watches where famous people or not famous people talk about their watches. And I'm like, what are these things? That costs that much money. It costs this much, whatever. I'm, but now, next thing you know, I'm a watch expert, despite having no place to put it. And then I start seeing, not unlike comedy, a, a somewhat hazy map of how the players interact with each other. And that's how you get into it. You're like, what is the unexplained world? And how can you make something that is on its surface boring to an outsider? Because it just is, right? Like, oh, comedy is funnier than not watches they tell time or they don't my phone tells the time who even cares about it it's like well some of them cost a million dollars and famous people are involved and famous people are kind of part of what is essentially legal insider trading (laughs) and that's how you write about that's why i hope to write about it this is like me no one else write this story but like but how do you even start right because it's like as you said if you don't know anything about the world of watches you wouldn't know like how like, yes, you might know the word Rolex, but if I go, how much is like a Rolex? You'd be like, I don't know, $40,000, $4,000, $16,000. And it's like, well, the answer is all of that. But, you know, what makes something $90,000? What makes something $450,000? Same watch, just different face color. Oh, I've had a bunch of these thoughts. Like, I've, I'm not nearly as far down the rabbit hole as you are. I'm like circling the very top of the rabbit hole. But so like a floor Rolex, like a lowest value Rolex is, I don't know what, maybe four or $5,000 yes. right now. The, the first luxury watch a person usually gets is a date just, and that's around four or $5,000. Exactly. Okay. So like, you know, a, a, a entry level Rolex is four or $5,000. And then you go, okay, well, why, why is it four or $5,000? And it's like, well, because they release a certain number of them every year. They're decaying at a certain rate. A certain amount of them are destroyed or taken out of circulation. And there's a certain amount that are left. And this is about what the market will support. And then my immediate question is, well, who decided how many of them to make and when? What what was that conversation like, right? Because other people must have made more of their watches that aren't Rolexes. Yes. And the real question is, are they? Are there only a certain amount of them? Are they decaying at this rate? We are just told that. The thing that is so fascinating is if you go to a watch store in New York City, a store that sells Rolexes and Patek Philippe's, you'll go in and they might have some watches and underneath they'll say for display only. Sometimes they won't even have the watches. They say for watches, please talk to a person because they don't sell watches at the stores. At the stores, you do a meet and greet to be maybe put on a wait list, to maybe get a watch. So there actually is no act. The idea of supply and demand is completely in control of the seller. However, everyone's in on the game of it because they know that if everyone buys into the myth, then it's to their own advantage because that increases the value of their own watch. They want to buy a $5,000 watch because that means they own a $5,000 watch and then they could sell it for $5,000 watch. If they buy a $2,000 watch, well, then they can't sell it for $5,000. So everyone needs to be told how scarce they are 
while not actually knowing how scarce they are. Because they're all scarce, yet Rolex makes us so many watches. And you can get them, but also you can't get them. It's not unlike a nightclub. Well, it kind of goes back like to some of the ideas about like gold itself, right? At a certain point in time, you had to accept gold in the world. And you would go, well, how much gold is there in the whole world? Bill, like, ah, we don't really know. We it's sort of predictable for like the next year or two how much gold we're gonna mine. We someone might find limitless gold yeah. in the new world, but we're just gonna go on the faith that the general dynamics of the gold market are semi-fixed, right? Like you see these kinds of uh human stories playing out throughout time, but then and I think this is where I tie it back to comedy, which is like you know, why is this certain boom in these kinds of specials? Well, it's because Netflix has a bunch of money, right? You change one ingredient in the system. And I think in watches, what you described as the change is internet influencing. Yes. Right. We've never had people shilling Rolexes in TikTok videos before. That's the new ingredient is there's a new magnet of interest coming in. And so a new group of people are experiencing the same sort of market game theory situation for the first time yeah and i think there's an access to information because it's like with watches rich people the dominant like famous rich people would buy watches that looked expensive because they had diamonds and stuff on them but they had probably a rich person probably had less easy ways of learning about what made a watch that had a lot of diamonds on it actually less value than a watch that is made out of steel that has not a diamond near it and one of the most hot watches is a steel watch that I, the face is stamped with Tiffany and it's Tiffany blue. And it's just because there's only 50 of them and everyone knows there's only 50 of them. And so one that's now rich people have that information and then it's an attractive amount of information. And I do think it's an evolution out of sneaker culture, but like it's a level up. I, I talk about like, like comedy because it's so cheap to produce it embraces new technologies very quickly. And the reason we are comedy is at where it's now, there's been so many new mediums over the last 20 years that comedy's like, cool, I can do that. Netflix is like, just started doing content. They're like, what's the cheapest way we can get a famous person on here? It's like, oh, if we give Chris Rock $20 million, that's a Chris Rock special. No, like, prestige TV show only costs $20 million, you know? So as silly as it seems. So that's how comedy did it. Where like watches, it really was an access to rich people and the rich people learning that there's a value to having poor compared to them fans who talk to them about, you know, like one of the most famous watch influencer is Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank. I watch videos and videos of Mr. Wonderful talking about watches. No one can afford even one of his watches that he talks about, but he will sometimes go to a store and be like, ah, the value of a long jean for the money is, you know, he's just like slumming it. But there is sort of this, like anything you can obsess over, you know, the internet has allowed access to it in a sort of exciting way. Though watches can't really be democratized like comedy can be. <laughs> okay, I think that's as good a place to end as any. <laughs> uh, thank you very much uh, for this interview, Jesse. Really oh, thank sure. you so much. It's been a real pleasure.
And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Jesse David Fox. Pick up his book, Comedy Book. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Susan Peterson. Thanks to Megan Valley for doing the show notes. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. And thanks to everyone over at Vox. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.